Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. is fine print followers, fine print followers. And what I wonder is, have you ever sort of seen something and thought, man, I'd like to do that. I'd like to get those results. I'd like to have that experience. And so you got very excited and you raised your hand, you volunteered, you signed up, you got involved. And it wasn't until it was already too late that you realized Man, I do not want to do this. This is like, there is a lot of fine print here that I did not pay attention to. Uh, this has happened to me more times than I want to admit. Anybody else a little bit excitable? Like you get so excited about something and you just don't comb over what it's actually going to cost you. And I think a lot of us do this. Uh, a couple years ago, my wife was, our, all of our kids uh, go to the same school as the kids that go to that school. Weird, huh? And um, <clears throat> some of them lived near us. And so my wife had set up this carpool with a couple other moms, and they would all take turns and rotate and, and drive the kids to school. And my wife was going through like a season where she was just like, man, it's just exhausting. And I wish I had like a morning or two to myself. And if like, you know, if someone else could carpool on my days. And I was just like, I was seeing the opportunity, and I'm like, I'm going to be a hero right now. And I sort of stepped in, and I was like, I can do the carpool. You know what I mean? And uh, I, was, I was wearing a, a onesie tearaway, and I ripped it off, and I had a superhero outfit on underneath. And she was like, please never wear that again in my presence. Um, and, and she was like, I could see her eyes lit up. She was very excited, right? It, it had the desired effect. I was like, she is going to love me. She's going to be excited. Also, I'm going to be a hero to my kids and get to hang out with them, get to know their friends a little bit better. It's going to be awesome. There are no downsides to this. And my wife did not mention the downsides because she was like, I am going to yoga, okay? I don't care what you're doing. You already committed. I'm out of here. And I quickly realized the first day, I was like, this is, this is not for me. This is... This is a lot, right? I mean, it's not that it's hard. It's just that it is wild. I mean, it is crazy. There are like, there's seven kids that are all crammed into our minivan, and they're all talking at maximum volume. All kids use what I call YouTube voice, which is like, hey, how you doing? You know, and the kid, like, that's all it is. And that's how they're talking to each other. They're all telling stories. No one's listening to one another. It's all gone. Then people are throwing stuff around the car. Things are like, they're, then they're turning on music. I don't even know how they're controlling the stereo. Who has a device that's somehow auto-connected? What's going on right now? And like, they're all being crazy. And I'm just like trying to like not wreck the car, get them there safe. I'm trying to like silence things. Don't pick on there. I will turn this vehicle around. I'm doing all that stuff. And I would get to the school and drop them off. And I would have to like pull around the corner and just sit there for a minute and be like, I would have to like calm myself down because it was just so crazy. It was like so much energy. It was so intense. And I remember, you know, coming home and, 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 and telling my wife, like, I don't, you know, wow, that is, that, that is a lot. And she's like, it's too late. It's too late for you. You are already, you're already committed. Uh, but fortunately, the pandemic bailed me out. So thanks, pandemic. Really came in clutch. Because, you know, we all have this thing where 
um, I'm, I'm sure you've done this at some point in your life, where our excitement, right, over a potential outcome often blinds us to the fine print of the process, right? It's like, I want to get that. I want to achieve that. I want to receive that. I don't want to have to actually do all that or experience all that or go through that in order to get there. And a lot of times this is how we get sold on a lot of things, right? We're like, yes, I would love to be skinny. Yeah, sign me up for your plan. And then you're like, well, what, what was it? You're just eating styrofoam four times a day? I don't, I can't do that. That's crazy. I'm not doing that program. This is insane, right? You didn't read the fine print. You don't want to do all that stuff. And a lot of times what happens if you're like me, you get out in the middle of it and then you realize after you've committed you went public, you posted about it, you told everyone, and then you're like, whoa, I can't be doing this. This is, no, this is not for me. And then you only really have three options, right? You, you, you have option number one, which is essentially to admit that you said yes too soon and just beg to, to bail out, you know, and just like apologize. And I'm sorry, I can't be doing this. You have option number two, which is just to sort of like do it halfway, just phone it in, not do a good job and hope nobody notices or cares, or maybe somebody fires you from the thing you didn't want to do in the first place, right? They're like, you're not really working out, and you're like, thank God. You know what I mean? I was trying not to work out, right? <laughs> but a lot of times, they just kind of let it go, because nobody wants to do that thing either. Or the third option is, you just you embrace the, the work of it, the difficulty of it, and, and you tell yourself as you're going through it that it is going to be well worth it on the other side. These are the only three choices we really have. And the, the reason I bring this up is because, like we said last week, before Jesus begins to actually preach what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, he walks throughout these villages and he recruits disciples. He's inviting these people to not just place their faith in him, but to, to follow him. To not just believe in him, but to behave like him. To embrace fully his philosophy of life to become his devoted disciples. And what I find fascinating is that some of them said yes right away. They're just like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Let's do this, right? And, and so they, they, they did. They instantly left their family. They left their friends. They left their job. And they just followed after Jesus. And after they made that decision that everyone they knew watched them do, then they heard the Sermon on the Mount. Talk about not reading the fine print, Right? I'll follow you and just do whatever. Do you guys know what he's talking about? He's about to tell us, right? And I, I just wonder if there were ever any people that Jesus originally recruited like me who were like, this is going to be amazing. I love it. I didn't really hear what it's about, but like a couple of my friends are doing it. Fishers of men, I don't know what that means. I'm in. Let's do this. And they sat down at the front row of the mountain, and they're like, let's go. And then Jesus starts talking, and then about halfway through the Beatitudes, they're like, yeah, I cannot do this. This is not going to work for me. I, I should have listened more, and I didn't know. I got I to gotta, I gotta go. I got to get out of here. I imagine that there was like one guy. There had to have been like a 13th or 14th disciple that he recruited, and then they, like halfway through, they were like, Mm, you guys, I gotta go. You know what I mean? And I just picture somebody on the mountain being like, excuse me, excuse me, sorry, this is awkward. I didn't, I should have, you know what? I got a thing, I got to go. <laughs> I always wonder if maybe that were the case because everything you've ever committed to, there was somebody in it like that. And the, the reason why I, I think this is because, like we said last week, um, Jesus uh, is pictured by Matthew uh, in this opening scene of the Sermon on the Mount as, as sitting 
on the side of a mountain because, you know, Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the new Moses. And Jesus is aware of this imagery and he plays into it. And Moses, um, on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, he begins his teaching by giving a set of commands. And Jesus begins his by giving a set of blessings known in our tradition as the Beatitudes, which is really interesting. This, this imagery that repeats in the old and again in the new. And, and, and yet what separates these two scenes, what's different about these sets of, of ideas is just as significant as what makes them similar. One of them is more prescriptive and the other one is more descriptive. Like Moses is giving a prescription, right? He is telling them, these are things you should do and should not do, okay? I was very clear about the thou shalt, thou shalt not, right? Jesus is doing something else, though. He's describing something. He's describing to these people, these followers that are listening to him, he's saying these are the types of people who God includes in his kingdom, in his movement, in the thing that he's doing. These are the people that he invites into his heaven. And this is what their lives look like. This is, what, this is the byproduct of them really, truly trusting in and aligning their lives with God. Like, if, if somebody says they're my follower, look for these things in their life, because this is how you would know if it's true. And, and then Jesus says a bunch of stuff that nobody expected that he was going to say. And here's why they didn't expect him to say that. Because there are more than one category of wisdom. And I've mentioned this before. And mo when most people think of wisdom, what they think of is a category of wisdom uh, that's typically called conventional wisdom. Okay, And conventional wisdom says, this is the way the world works and what you need to do to fit into it as is. The Ten Commandments, in a lot of ways, are a set of conventional wisdom. And most of the ideas in there, they make sense to us automatically, right? Like, we, we don't have to think very hard to be like, why would somebody want a society to live that way, right? We listen to them, we're like, okay, don't kill, don't steal, don't sleep with somebody else's wife. These are all good ideas. Like, I, the, I understand why you would want people to do this and live this way. Like, this makes sense in a conventional sense, but what Jesus is sharing in the Sermon on the Mount is not conventional at all. In fact, what he is sharing is a different sort of wisdom altogether. He is sharing alternative wisdom. And alternative wisdom says this is the way God works and what to do to experience and expand heaven on earth in the here and now. Now, maybe you're noticing, like, while these two lists, while these two sets of ideas are both wisdom, they're different types of wisdom. And although there may be some ideas that overlap, they're aimed at different outcomes. They're pointed at different goals. And in fact, when you're surrounded by and steeped in conventional wisdom, especially if it has made you particularly successful inside your culture, it's when you hear alternative wisdom, it sounds kind of stupid. It, it, like, in fact, when a lot of people hear these teachings, maybe you've thought this, right? They'll, they'll listen to these things that Jesus says right off the bat, the first things he teaches about in his teaching ministry. And we hear them, we're like, those are, those are interesting ideas, but like, 
that is never going to work, okay? That is not how the world works. And honestly, that's a fair critique. I, I would even say that Jesus would agree with you. And the reason why I say that is because that's what he said, okay? In, in, in John chapter 18, verse 36, he says this. He says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, what I'm about to say to you is, is, is not conventional because my kingdom isn't conventional. I'm not about to tell you how the world works because my kingdom is not of this world. Like, it operates in a way that's not conventional. It measures success in a way that's not conventional. In fact, I'm proposing an alternative approach to life. And if you don't understand that, much of what I'm about to teach and tell you is not going to make any sense at all to you. Which is why Jesus frequently says the same sentence over and over and over again in the Gospels. I'll read you an example. This is from Matthew chapter 11, verse 15. He says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does that mean? Is Jesus saying, what I'm about to tell you is so countercultural, a lot of you are not going to get it. I just want to say that out the gate. Because if you are listening for conventional wisdom about the way the world works, you're going to be confused because what I'm going to give you is alternative wisdom about the way God works. And if you're not listening for that, you're not going to get it. And then he starts to teach. And he gives um, what we now know to be the Beatitudes. And, and I want to just give you a brief overview of these this morning. Now, it is there's so much uh, packed into this. This is the genius of Jesus, right? Everything he says is packed with meaning and significance and depth. And we can't go all the way to the bottom of that together. And so I'm going to do my best to give you a brief overview. But again, you're going to probably want to scribble notes fast or take some pictures of the slides. Um, because I want to I move through these so you can get an idea of them so that I can make an observation about what to do with them. And the first thing that Jesus says is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And some of you are like, like literally poor? Maybe, but not necessarily. This phrase is often translated, maybe in the Bible that you brought today, uh, poor in spirit, right? And so what does that mean? To be poor in spirit is to live as if it is obvious that the world does not revolve around you. Some of you are like, man, I'm trying to teach my kids to be poor in spirit. How do we get there, right? Like it's, it's, it's living as if your opinions, experiences, and preferences are not more important than other people's. It's, it's living as if you understand that there's a lot that you don't yet know or fully understand. In fact, it's being aware of the fact that you need help, that you cannot be and do it all on your own, that you are not self-sufficient or self-reliant. In fact, you are dependent on God and interdependent on others, which means that you have something to give to them and you also have something to receive from them, from all of the people that you're surrounded with, that you are a part of something bigger than you that will live on long after you. 
And the promise here is that those who live this way gain access to heaven in the here and now. Now, what does that mean? It means a lot of things, but there's one theologian who, who frames it this way. He says that heaven is the realm in which everyone is purposefully connected. And hell is its opposite. Hell is the realm in which everyone is painfully isolated. That in fact, when you feel connected to and at peace with God and others, it feels like heaven. And when you are at odds with everyone or you are isolated from everyone else, it feels like hell. Like having a poor spirit gives us access to heaven and having a prideful spirit isolates us from other people and, and, and pushes us into a corner that ends up feeling like our own personal hell. Which is a great way to start a speech about, guys, come join my movement, right? It's very exciting. He goes on to say this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And what does that mean? To mourn is to take time to grieve what's been lost, which could be a person, right? But it could also be a season or a dream or um, it could be a, a sense of connectedness or the way thing, you wish things would be but aren't or the self-inflicted wounds from your own sinful or stupid actions. But whatever it is, mourning is refusing to move past it until you fully feel it. It's allowing ourselves to be present in our pain and in the pain of others instead of discounting or denying it. It's, it's sitting in the severity and separation that sin has caused us and other people. It's embracing and expressing sorrow. It's moving through our pain and learning the lessons it has to teach us. And a lot of you are thinking like, aren't there pills to keep you from having to do that? Like, can't you just get a prescription, right? Like, I don't, and that's what we do in our country, right? We're just like, give me some pills so I don't ever have to be sad, including about things that I probably should be sad about because they're sad things. We don't want to have to face that. We don't want to have to go into that. We don't want to have to experience that. Maybe you're wondering, how is that even a blessing? Why would he call that a blessing? Well, first off, I would argue that we don't mourn what doesn't matter. Like, nobody grieves something they could care less about. In fact, we grieve deeply because we care greatly. It reveals to us that something was significant enough to experience deep sorrow about. And this is telling us, this promise is telling us that, that those who are brave enough to be vulnerable about their disappointment will be reminded that they're not alone, that their pain is not pointless, that their story is not over. And in fact, it actually enables them to rediscover that relating is way more important than achieving. And, and you've probably caught glimpses of this in your own life where um, somebody experienced or got close to death. And after they came back from that funeral or that close call or that thing or the hospital, they had this epiphany of just like, man, why am I working so much? Why am I putting so much stock in this? Why do I care so much about that thing? What matters is people, relationships, purpose, right? It has this way of right-siding your priorities. Then Jesus says, God blesses those who are humble. 
for they'll inherit the whole earth. What is it to be humble? To, to be humble is to relate to others with a right-sized sense of self. It's not thinking of yourself as better or worse than you actually are, but it's being open and honest about both your, your giftings and your flaws. Oftentimes this, this word that's translated here as humble is translated as meekness. A lot of times people mistakenly think that meekness means weakness, but that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, humility is being strong enough to be able to steamroll a situation but being self-confident and self-controlled enough not to use your strength to be condescending to or controlling of others. In other words, the humble don't use what they have or what they know to make others feel stupid or small because they prioritize compassion and connection and character over just crushing the competition. And the promise that God gives them is that they will inherit the earth. What a profound thought. What does that even mean? I mean, to, to inherit something, it means that you have, like something has been passed down to you, right? It, it was gifted. You didn't really earn it. It was granted to you. It was gifted to you. And the intention is that you would steward it well so that hopefully you can also pass it down to those who come after you. And this is saying that those who are Humble are entrusted with the earth itself because they've silenced and surrendered their own egos enough to know not to selfishly strip or squander the earth, but to care for it and cultivate it so that it can continue to bless people long after they're gone. Then Jesus says this. He says, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice for they will be satisfied. When my daughter heard this, she got excited because the only justice she knows is that girl's store where everything's pink and has glitter on it. And she was like, blessed are the people who want all, everything that justice sells because they're going to be satisfied means they're going to get it. Shopping spree, dad, Jesus said it. And I'm like, that is a misinterpretation, okay? What does this mean, right? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for justice? Sometimes that word justice is translated as righteousness. And to hunger and thirst for justice is to desire to do whatever it takes to live in right relationship with others. Not by forcing them to do what you want, but by sacrificing yourself on behalf of what God wants. Big difference. And what is it that God wants? Jesus is clear about this over and over and over again. God wants us to love one another like he loves us in a way that is, is classified by joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. In other words, like, Jesus isn't after action movie, shoot them up, make them pay sort of justice. We wish he was because those are the movies we like. But there's a reason that Jesus wedges justice between humility and mercy. Because what he's trying to signal to us is that justice, when it's carried out God's way, is always surrounded by mercy and humility. This isn't often the way we want it to go. 
You see, God's big goal isn't relentless revenge. It's to reconcile relationships. And, and I should also say, just while I'm offending everyone with Jesus' words, insisting that you are always right isn't righteous. That's self-righteous. Pursuing justice Jesus' way, it, it means it begins with, with not pointing out and, and pushing others or punishing others for their wrongs, but admitting to and making amends for your own wrongs. Isn't that the kind of justice we are not hungry and thirsty for? God, show me where I'm unjust. Show me where I'm part of the problem. Show me where I'm making mistakes. Start with me. Usually what I pray is, God, let them know what they're doing. They're horrible. I will do it, okay? I will do whatever. I will Liam Neeson. I will whatever you need, God. I'm willing to step up. And God's like, not interested. Let's talk about you. And I'm like, I don't want that kind of justice. Um, no, thank you. And here's the promise. The promise is that if our aim is doing all we can to live in right relationship with everyone, we'll find it deeply satisfying, deeply fulfilling in surprising ways. Jesus goes on to say that God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? To, to be merciful means to refuse to emotionally or relationally torture someone for the way you think they wronged you. And some of you are like, well, that is my favorite pastime. I, what am I going to do for fun? Right? Because there's something that feels good about that, right? There's something that feels good about holding over someone's head what they did. Like reminding them that you, you, will, you will never let them forget that you will never forget what they did. And you're going to make them pay. And whether we want to admit it or not, the reason why we do this is to shame diminish, punish, or manipulate them into paying us back. And maybe you can imagine these are not Jesus' methods. Mercy, we're told, doesn't maintain a record of wrongs. It, it feels the pain, it confronts, it boundaries, it forgives, and it moves forward without being weighed down by all the, the baggage that vendettas require. I wonder how much space you have rented out inside of your heart and mind to people who have hurt you and you need to boot them out in a weird way by granting them mercy. And this is the promise. It says that when you make this a priority to give mercy to others, that you'll be able to recognize and receive mercy when it's given to you. And I think for a lot of us, what this is saying is that a lot of us, God is trying to give us mercy or other people are trying to show us mercy and we don't see it or we flat out reject it because we would never give mercy to anyone else so we can't believe anybody would give it to us. It's not saying that like, it's not saying that like God refuses to give you mercy until you give it to someone else. He's saying that God is always giving you mercy but you can't really receive it until you're willing to give it to someone else. Because it shifts the way that you see and feel about everything. And Jesus says that God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. 
to have a pure heart is to focus your internal monologue on what God wants for others as opposed to what you want for yourself. And again, this is really hard to do. The idea is that what you hide in your heart shows up in how you see. And it's important to understand that in the Jewish mindset, the heart isn't like the touchy-feely thing that it is like, you know, in our culture. The heart was like the place where you uh, repeat and regurgitate thoughts to yourself over and over and over again, right? It's the internal monologue that you hold inside. And, and what this is telling us is that if you allow your internal monologue to revolve around who hurt you and, you know, what you wish they'd see in you or say to you or let you do or acknowledge is true, those thoughts will reshape the way you see everything. And what is true about a lot of us is that some of our hearts are full of fear. Right? They're full of anger. They're full of bitterness and pride. And so when we look out at the world and at other people, we see everyone through the anger that exists within us, through the pride that exists within us, through the envy that exists within us. It taints everything we see. But the promise here is that people who discipline their minds to, 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 to chew on and think about what God wants for others they start to see God everywhere. In every situation, in every circumstance, when they look at every single person, they begin to see the image of God within them, including in the lives of people who have deeply hurt them or who hate them. And this is how you know it is truly God at work. Then he says, in Matthew 5, 9, God blesses those who work for peace, for they'll be called the children of God. What does it mean to work for peace? To work for peace is to create common ground for people to safely address their issues instead of attacking or avoiding each other. Which is a bummer, because those are like our two favorite ways to deal with conflict, right? Am I going to attack them or avoid them? So a lot of us are really inventive. We're like, let's mix them up and do a whole passive-aggressive cocktail. Let's do them both, you know? First, I'm going to avoid, then attack, then avoid, then attack, then two attacks and an avoid. But peacemakers don't do this, right? Those who are working for peace listen intently and respectfully to both sides expecting to learn something from each. They work to rid themselves of their own subtle prejudices. They refuse to demonize every single person they don't agree with. And because they do this, Jesus tells us, they'll often be ridiculed by both sides. In fact, those who truly work for peace, the Jesus way, will be labeled as wimpy and wishy-washy and afraid of the truth and dangerous, and ungodly, and unpatriotic. And you know what's really interesting about all of these adjectives? They're all things that people said about Jesus. Specifically, any time he was trying to bring about peace. And the promise that's given is that those work for peace will be called the children of God. That they'll be identified as 
as having been with Jesus, as being God's kids too, because they're clearly following his example. Because anybody can entrench themselves and start a war. But to sacrifice yourself for the sake of peace, that's some holy son of God type territory, okay? You've got to be tapped into something otherworldly in order to live in that place. And then Jesus says the most offensive of all the Beatitudes, it's his closer, right? He's just like, oh, not everyone's left. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and do this one. In verse 10, he says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, exclamation point. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. Some of you are like, I can't wait for you to interpret this one. What does it mean to be persecuted for doing right? And unfortunately, it, it, it actually is what it sounds like. It, um, that is literally what it means. It, it means to lose connections and opportunities and friends and favor and respect and resources for modeling the life of Jesus in your everyday life. And the promise that's being made here is that those who embody the Beatitudes will suffer certain consequences for doing so because not everybody is going to get it. Not everybody has ears to hear. Some people are going to be angered by it. Some people are going to be alarmed by it. But you need to remind yourself that you are not living by the same rules or for the same rewards as everybody else. That the kingdom that you are loyal to, if you're a Jesus follower, is not a kingdom of this world. And so when people look at the way it works and say, that's not going to work in the real world. That's not the way the real world works. Jesus' reply is always, you know what? It hasn't yet, but let's you and I bring heaven to earth. Let's change the way the world works by establishing a different kind of kingdom. Again, I imagine the first disciples wondering, that was a lot. This is way harder than the Moses stuff. I mean, if this is what it truly means to follow Christ, if this is what it looks like to experience and expand heaven in the here and now, like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, I don't even know if it's worth it. Like, I, don't, I might, you know, I'm thinking I might just settle for, like, conventional wisdom. Because maybe, like, I don't, I mean, I got excited at first, but, like, Maybe I don't want to live like a, a, a satisfying life. Maybe I just want to live like a, like a culturally successful life. Maybe I don't want to follow Jesus. And, and some people do this. In fact, we know this for a fact because later when Jesus is teaching more of his really hard-to-swallow alternative wisdom, we're told this in John chapter 6, verse 60, Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? And then in verse 66, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Also, just a fun fact that this takes place in John 6, 6, 6. That's just interesting to me. I just think that's fascinating. It's neither here nor there. It's just, if you like numbers. 
and they desert him, right? And where do they go? Where do these people go? And like, what kind of wisdom do they crawl back to? They probably went back to clinging to their culture's version of conventional wisdom, just like we do. Like, oh, your alternative wisdom, that's a lot, Jesus. I don't know. Oh, maybe I'm just going to go back to like, I'll just do what everyone else is doing. Jesus' words, even now, they sound strange to us because our current culture's version of these ideas reads a lot different. I mean, it's never really been like officially published, but I wrote a version. I'll just read you what I think it is. And I know it's close because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Like, that sounds kind of the way that we are. This is what our culture, I think, believes. Blessed are the rich, arrogant, and insistent because they usually get what they want. Blessed are the calloused and the cynical because no one ever gets too close. Blessed are the prideful know-it-alls because anyone who contradicts them is clearly an idiot, especially if you ask them. Blessed are those going after bigger and better because everyone else envies everything they've got. Blessed are those who are punitive grudge holders because they make people pay. Blessed are those who assume the worst because everyone's way too afraid to disappoint them. Blessed are those who force others to do things their way because they get compliance. Blessed are those who refuse to submit to anything they don't like because they're never uncomfortable. And blessed are those who are constantly complimented and pampered because that's what we all want, right? And you can choose to embrace this wisdom. A lot of people do. In fact, I would tell you this, a lot of Christians do. And that's fine. But I don't think you can adhere to this wisdom and call yourself a Christ follower. Because this is what it is to embrace these beatitudes the Jesus way. You can live according to our current culture's conventional wisdom, but the only success you'll experience will be surface level. And I think this is our frustration with the fine print when it comes to both of these lists. Because we end up discovering that the world's conventional wisdom, it doesn't typically produce alternative results. Right? It, doesn't, it can't really usually deliver joy, peace, fulfillment, soul-level satisfaction. And we know that because a lot of people who are very culturally successful don't have access to any of these things. And the thing that's equally as frustrating is that Jesus' alternative wisdom doesn't guarantee conventional results. Nowhere in any of the blessings does Jesus promise wealth, popularity, or notoriety. Now, you may gain access to these things, but that would be a bonus because it's not the promise. So here's the question that Jesus' disciples had to wrestle with that I think you and I have to wrestle with as prospective disciples 
of Jesus. If these two modes of wisdom are aimed at totally different outcomes, then you have to decide which matters more. Which matter most to you? Because that'll dictate to you what kind of wisdom you will prioritize in your life. And here's what is always true when the Jesus way is rolled out in front of people is that there are always people who step up and press in and there are always people who step back and pull away. And here's the beauty of who God is. God will love you either way. But the results in this life are way different. And the way your life echoes when you are gone are way different. So what do you want? What do you want? Because what you want will determine who you follow and what wisdom you live by. And that's what I want to pray into your life today. I want to pray that God would enable you to wrestle with this proposition, that God would challenge you to, to truly wrestle to the ground what it means to be his disciple so that you can experience something more than just surface success, that you can experience the depth of satisfaction that Jesus came to give. Heaven in the here and now. Would you bow your heads across this room? I want to pray for you today. God, thank you so much for who you are, for the life that you have given us, and for the way in which you show us how to live. God, we could, we could repeat and we could press into all of these phrases for the rest of our lives, and I don't think we would be able to unpack the depth and the brilliance of them, but we know enough now to know what it is you're saying to us, what it is you're inviting us into, and God, that means we are going to have to disconnect from a certain way of living and being and thinking in order to move towards your way. And God, I pray that you would give us the courage to do this in each area of our life, that we would trust you as our rabbi, as our master, as our Lord and Savior. God, that it wouldn't just be a prayer we pray so we can sneak into heaven, but God, it is something that we devote our lives to because we believe it is the best way to live. God, unleash joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control into our lives and our relationships. And may you lead us towards yourself and a life to the full. In Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.